This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Luke John Day. Uh, Dr. Day is the CMO, Chief Medical Officer of the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center. Uh, we're going to talk today about what the CMO role looks like today there, how it's changing, how it's evolving, what advice he has for people trying to have great and impactful careers and for leaders and more. Dr. Day, can you take a moment to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me today. Really appreciate it. Um, my name is uh, Luke John Day or Luke Day. Uh, by training, I'm a gastroenterologist um, and have been for about the last decade. Uh, and just really over the last two years have stepped into a new role uh, at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital as their chief medical officer. And, and talk about this for a moment. We see a lot of people from a lot of different specialties end up in sort of a chief medical officer role and more of a leadership position around health systems. It's not often that I see gastroenterologists once in a while. It is that because gastroenterologists are so busy being proceduralists and they're so engaged in that? Or why is it that you don't have that many gastroenterologists then end up in the role that you've ended up in? Yeah, I, I've met a couple of gastroenterologists who have been chief medical officers, um, but as you mentioned, it's it's a pretty small number across the country. Uh, you know, I think gastroenterologists are, are well suited for leadership positions um, in, in the fact that we straddle both medicine, so sort of on the um, the cognitive side, sort of in clinic seeing patients, but then also on the procedural side, so doing endoscopy, and so and we move through the inpatient, the outpatient setting, um, and so I think we have a, a good breadth of um, knowledge in terms of sort of all those various areas and work with different stakeholders and specialties and so have a good, rich understanding of everyone and then how operations are. And so I think they're well suited uh, to go into uh, leadership roles within healthcare. But there's, you know, I think, you know, when I started, there wasn't a lot of pathways uh, or wasn't necessarily encouraged. And so I, I think that is changing. And so uh, a lot of the younger gastroenterologists uh, that I've been mentoring now uh, are much more interested in leadership roles, not only within GI, but within the entire hospital system itself. And you see the GI practice, or especially, has magnificent professional societies. So people are giving their time to lots of different efforts. I just, I don't see a lot of them. And maybe it's because a lot of the practice is outpatients, so they're not as much as the leadership roles in the health systems, or, or just an observation. I, I have noticed it's just it's a small percentage compared to a lot of specialties that practice more in hospitals, I would say. So Dr. Day, talk about the role of chief medical officer, and, and how do you view that role? When you came into the role, do you set your own priorities for the role? Are they set for you, or is it some mix of those things? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, you know, so a chief officer really uh, is an important player, I think, within, you know, healthcare industry. They're really responsible for managing, you know, as I see it, medical operations for a hospital or a medical campus, really ensuring uh, staff and patients are properly cared for. And there's just a number of responsibilities that I think, you know, this person is um, uh, in charge of. Uh, and for me, you know, I think it was a mix of sort of, you know, making sure that I help um, align the work that I do with the hospital and the campus's strategy direction um, and sort of where they wanted to go in the future. But also part of the other role that I play as, you know, supervising daily clinical operations, um, really just trying to make sure that our patients receive high quality and safe care, and then just focusing on a whole host of other areas, such as, you know, making sure that we practice evidence-based medicine, trying to reduce variation in care, which has been a, you know, particularly hot topic over the last couple of years. And I think, you know, in our system, really moving more towards, you know, a population health model for healthcare delivery, um, because many times, you know, hospitals or systems can be very siloed. 
And so it's now just sort of thinking about everything from primary care to specialty care to hospital care. How is that kind of all integrated together and how do we support our, our patients from a population perspective? And Dr. J, I'm going to ask you a totally inappropriate question. You've got a bit of an accent. Where are you from originally? Are you from Canada originally, or where's the accent from originally? <laughs> I am from Southern California originally, <laughs> so just outside of San Bernardino. It sounds so funny because you sound like you have a little bit of an accent. So how different is the healthcare system in Southern California versus Northern California? You're very much the same. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I would say... Um, at least my experience has been Northern California feels like there are more integrated healthcare delivery systems up here, um, really sort of trying to sort of look at things from a more unified approach across different cities. Whereas Southern California, I think they are moving in that direction, but it seems, I think probably just from geography and population size, is much more um, still siloed and a little bit scattered and fragmented. But I think they're trying to move more toward integrated networks, but it's just, I think it's coming along at a slower pace than it has in Northern California. California. Thank you. And then UCSF, uh, where I think you did your, you're a professor at or did your schooling at, magnificent institution, the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, a magnificent institution that also serves as, I think, the great safety net hospital for part of San Francisco as well. Is that correct? Or tell us about the Zuckerberg Hospital. Yeah, a great question also. You know, ZSFG is the only um, safety net hospital in the entire city and county of San Francisco. Um, you know, we're the only provider of trauma and psychiatric emergency services for the entire city. Um, you know, we're a comprehensive medical center, so we have a hospital, but also the rest of the campus has outpatient clinics, um, uh, research facilities, uh, and really, you know, we serve a whole host of sort of, you know, complex care that patients require. So, you know, we have probably about over 100,000 uh, inpatients per year, which is about close to 15% uh, of inpatient care provided in the city. And then we also have primary care clinics on campus. We have over 65 different specialty care services uh, that we offer on the campus. And then, uh, as you had pointed out, you know, we're um, uh, aligned with UCSF, you know, one of the top academic centers in the country. And so we partner with them in terms of our faculty here, but also a lot of our trainees that come through the campus. So our medical students, residents and fellows. Magnificent. And, and when you look at people having great careers, I mean, you've, you've got, to, you got to sort of love your career. You, you're a gastroenterologist, do some other things, now chief medical officer. Are you still mixing, practicing with being chief medical officer or 100% CMO at this point? No, I, I could never give up my practice. Um, you know, my time commitment has changed over the last uh, decade, um, but I probably do about 30% of my time is actually direct patient care. Um, so uh, I still do endoscopy for about one to two days a week uh, and still take call uh, and then also do teaching for uh, our uh, residents and our fellows who rotate, rotate through the GI service here. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I always encourage people uh, as a leader in medicine and a leader in healthcare is to remain committed to your clinical practice, uh, even for if it's a small percentage, because I think you, when you still have those relationships with other individuals who are providing frontline care, and then also you just get to see how things run and how the system runs. Um, and so you're not so removed from it. And so me continuing my clinical practice really keeps me engaged and involved and also sees where we're doing well, but also where we potentially could improve in. Yeah, absolutely. What other advice do you give to young physicians or young leaders trying to have great careers? 
Yeah, you know, so I've had a lot of wonderful uh, mentors over the last couple of years. And I think really a, a couple of pearls that they have given me is, you know, one, they've always told me, you know, do something that you really love and look forward to, um, that it shouldn't feel like work or a job. Um, always surround yourself uh, with people who you enjoy working with, but also to make sure that people ask you questions and may even challenge you on some of your ideas. Um, really be humble and try to be humble to those around you and, and also practice practice active listening. And I think the other thing is, you know, what I've always tried to do is be as transparent as I can in the work that I do and to be visible in all the areas where uh, I help to manage operations and really try to hear from people who are doing the work um, because many times they're going to point out issues that are um, potentially uh, impacting operations and then they also may have the ideas in terms of how to improve it. Fantastic. And advice for having a great career love what you do. You talk about staying very present, over-communicating, and so forth. When you, when you think about other physician leaders, any specific advice for physician leaders? You know, many, many physician leaders now are moving into CMO roles, into CEO roles, as are nurse leaders, too. Right. Any specific advice for that group in terms of being great leaders, or is it, you know, is it very much the same, though? I think it's very much the same. I think one, you know, what's, what I have found to be really critically important is to have mentors, um, you know, mentors who you can look to, um, who you can ask questions for, seek advice, um, you know, seek um, recommendations from, but also to make sure you build a team, a team that not only supports you, but that you can rely on, um, that helps you sort of implement what it is your strategy and your goals are. And then I think it goes back to really being um, transparent. So, you know, over communicating. I always tell people you can't communicate enough and there's by different mechanisms mechanisms of which you can do it. I think always to be present. So, you know, I always try to respond to anyone who reaches out to me, whether it's by phone or email, to make sure I hear their concerns but also address them. And then also I think it's just being visible in many areas. Because um, I think if staff see you in those areas, they feel more um, comfortable coming to you and sharing their concerns, but also sharing with you what's working well. And so I I think it's really sort of those things of, you know, being visible, being present, and being transparent. And you obviously have tremendous personal skills, I know, and I mean that as a compliment. Did you, you. <laughs> formal, for, formal leadership training at all, or do you recommend formal leadership training? How do people go about that? I mean, different people are gifted with different personal skill sets. Yours comes across very clearly from the first moment communicated with you. But is that something that's learned or is that something that's just natural to you? And are there ways for people to learn these skills? Yeah, so it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning is, you know, when I started off uh, in medicine, there wasn't sort of this idea that physicians became um, leaders or administrators, um, you know, at least from an operational standpoint. You know, most of the time it's really around sort of research. At least that was the model that was presented to me. But uh, before medical school, I did uh, management consulting for two years. And I loved it so much. I loved sort of the idea of looking at systems, quality improvement, getting together with stakeholders and, and learned a lot from people uh, within that industry and knew that I wanted to kind of sort of bring it in, and merge it with medicine. And really, you know, throughout my training, both in medical school and residency, just sort of gravitated towards people who uh, were doing quality improvement work, were doing systems work, and, and many of them were leaders within the hospital. You know, now there's a lot more... Um, 
practical training um, and a lot of courses and a lot of sort of, you know, um, didactics for people to take in terms of sort of healthcare leadership. And, and I find those incredibly uh, helpful and impactful. And so I definitely encourage people to take advantage of it because there's many more of them that are available now than when I actually started uh, in my career in medicine. And let me ask you a question about doing a couple years of management consulting. Now, I'm in my 50s, and so the people that went to medical school that were friends of mine and did so a long time ago, they very much went to medical school and went right through, went right from college to medical school. Now it seems as though everybody does a year or two of work before they go to medical school. Is that universal? Is that a trend? Is that required? Just Could you just give me two moments on that? Yeah. So when I actually applied to medical school, which, you know, wasn't that long ago, it was right around sort of, you know, the beginning of 2000s, you know, taking a year or two off was actually discouraged. I was actually discouraged to do that. Um, I, for me at the time, it was really important to do something before going to medical school and to do something different. That's changed over the last two decades. Now, I would say the majority of students that I interview for medical school and even residency take one to two years off before they enter in. And, and I actually think it's incredibly uh, an invaluable time. Um, you know, medical school and, and the training afterwards, it's, it's a long journey. Um, and so I think it's important to take that time off beforehand to do something different, learn a different skill, learn more about yourself before you embark on sort of um, the, the long road ahead of becoming a physician. Fascinating. Dr. Day, I want to thank you for your time today. Just a pleasure visiting with you, truly. Just a pleasure. Thank you for joining the Becker's Healthcare Podcast today. Thank you so much, Scott. It's great to meet with you and talk with you, and I really appreciate your time today.